So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day. Hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Welcome back, Michael. Why, thank you. It's been a, a week of deliberations and stress and panic cramming and list building to, to get to this point where we are drinking a tangerine wheat. No, raspberry wheat, right? Tangerine raspberry. Raspberry tangerine wheat. Yes. Buckle in. This is uh, an interesting year to have to do one of these halfway lists on. Is there any opening statements you want to make about how you prioritized your list or considered titles this time around uniquely? Ooh, um, uh, uh, nothing uh, in particular. You're right. It has been a strange year for new releases. I have been watching way, way more older titles this year uh, versus new releases just because there have only been so many that have really caught my interest. But um, I think uh, a lot of great ones have come out nonetheless, and there is still plenty for us to talk about. Um, what about you? Yeah, I think that I, if anything, this year I've prioritized not only watching classic films like you, but I've reprioritized watching um, directorial debuts, as many as I could get my hands on this year, just because it is a unique year where, um, you know, a filmmaker that might get attention at a film festival isn't going to. And so I want to be that audience, you know, that's there waiting for these directorial debuts. You know, we saw some great stuff that's not going to be on my list this year. Um, the Vast of Night, Blow the Man Down, um, just some really special entries that um, I don't think are talked about enough yet. Yeah. Um, plenty to talk about, though. Um, we had discussed doing a, a little bit of a different intro this time around, where I'll list some um, titles that are considered stand-up comedy special one hours. Um, just as an idea of the top three stand-up specials that I've enjoyed this year before we kick off the normal list content do it what do you got so when i was younger and i was waiting i would tell guys i'm not ready to have sex yet is that okay and anytime guys were really cool about that decision that just made me want to have sex with them more the hottest thing you can say to a girl is hey we don't have to do anything <gasps> now we do all right number one is a um comic who has a fantastic first name um, and this is her debut special. Her name is Taylor Tomlinson, and the special is Quarter Life Crisis. It's currently on Netflix. I believe it came out in um, February, March, and just really, really sharp wit, really solid uh, performance, um, really owns the stage. I, she carries over that atmosphere that you would have at a live performance, I think, very well and has an original storytelling quality to her uh, delivery. And number two would be Burt Kreischer's Hey Big Boy, also on Netflix, which is one of the funnest times I've had with a comic this year. He's laughing at his own jokes, which is making me laugh mm -hmm. at his own jokes. He's laughing at the expense of himself or his children or his wife. And it's just, it's a nice time. You just sit there, you laugh, you drink some beer. 
what else can you ask for? It's one of those special specials. Last but not least is Jimmy O. Yang, who you might know from Silicon Valley or Crazy Rich Asians um, or the current Netflix um, show Space Force. He has a special, which is also his debut special called Good Deal, in which he discusses what it's like to have grown up in Hong Kong, emigrated to the United States, and attempted to make it as a comic and become an actor, and have your dad become a more successful actor than you after making fun of you for getting into acting in the first place. It's a very delightful special, and I I really enjoy his material and think he's going to be a sharp writer down the road. After I graduated, I didn't want to do like econ or finance. So I went up to my dad, I was like, Dad, I don't want to do any of this. I, I want to go try and do stand-up. And he's like, what's a, what's a stand-up? You mean like a talk show? I was like, yeah, sure, talk show, whatever you want to call it, okay? But I want to go pursue my dreams. And he was like, no. <laughs> Pursuing your dreams, how you become homeless? I was like, no, no, dad, dad, it's, things are different now. We're in America, okay? In America, we're supposed to do what we love. He was like, no. Everyone does what they hate for money and use the money to do what they love. One time I asked my dad, I was like, dad, after 38 years, do you still love mom? And he was like, love? <laughs> Your mom married me to escape communist China. It's a not love, it's a good deal. Love it. All on Netflix? Uh, that one is on Prime. The other two mm. were on Netflix. Very cool. I haven't seen the second two, but I saw the Taylor Tomlinson one and can second all of those thoughts. Very funny stuff. Oh, good. I'm glad you saw it. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. We recently joined as members, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. On to Wounded Soldiers. Why don't you start us off, Michael? All right. Uh, for people who are joining us for the first time for one of our best of the years so far or end of the year episodes, we do Wounded Soldiers where we talk about a film that um, either got um, a not so great reception at the box office or was not particularly well reviewed critically. Uh, and we go to bat for that movie. Yeah, um, the criteria we use is box office gross. Um, I don't remember our exact number. I think we agreed on 100,000. Maybe it's 200,000. I genuinely don't remember, but mine qualifies here. And we agreed to under 55 or 50 on Metacritic. That's right. Uh, and I have proceeded to break these rules I think most of the time. Now. You've never followed them. I don't think. Maybe Peterloo was one time uh, oh, yeah. that actually met the criteria. Uh, but yes, otherwise we made the rules and I quickly broke them. So my apologies for that. Uh, and my pick this year is once again breaking the rules. In my defense, this is not a normal year for movies uh, with COVID-19 just uh, Wait, what? destroying <laughs> movie going uh so my wounded soldier for the uh 2020 so far is never rarely sometimes always who came with you today my cousin do you have a place to stay tonight i know you came from far away 
I'll figure it out. This area's closed. Can I sleep here? Where's the rest of the money? La, 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 la. I want to make sure that you're safe. La, 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 la. I know this is hard. ask you some questions they can be really personal just answer either never rarely sometimes or always which is an odd pick i guess because it is uh critically acclaimed but uh this is one of those movies that took a major hit by opening um theatrically just days before theaters uh, started shutting down because of COVID-19. And I feel like this was just developing such great word of mouth and such buzz after uh, premiering really well at Sundance. I just felt like this movie was on its way to having a really great story and finding an audience over time as it slowly rolled out and it just got crushed and it only, you know, made like less than $20,000 or something in its first few days because it only had three days in theaters. Um, and uh, it is now available for rental on VOD. I hope people find it there, and I hope that has helped, um, you know, uh, recoup some of the, the losses. And, uh, yeah, I hope people still check it out, but would have loved to have seen this um, on the big screen and given it that chance. Yeah, I think we'll talk about this shortly. For sure. Um, my Wounded Soldier this year is a directorial debut film. We heard about this fella. But we think it's time to finish the job. We have to do it. This is not loyalty. Please. It's servitude. from the director Nick Rowland. Uh, it's from Ireland. It's called Calm with Horses. When I watched it, apparently the title has changed since that period of time. It is now called The Shadow of Violence. It is unlisted on Metacritic as a title, which I'm going to take means that it qualifies. It also grossed a measly $48,000 or $48,498 uh, worldwide gross. Um, that's not domestic, that's worldwide, which is, I think, one of the lowest totals I've seen for um, a movie that certainly has everything that it would contain to be a little indie darling, especially f to be championed by a country like Ireland. You know, normally we see these these things that are local to um, Brazil or a, a European um, country that at least do really, really well and gross almost half a mil in their their little area. And here, you know, I don't think they made back their budget. Um, it has a fantastic performance by Cosmo Jarvis, who we will be talking about later. Um, it features uh, Barry Cohen, who you might remember from The Killing of a Sacred Deer or Dunkirk. Um it's just a really special um, film that shows the brutality of um, violence in a very um, 
unfamiliar way that, that I just haven't seen from a lot of other places. This didn't make it to my top three directorial debuts, but it's absolutely a wounded soldier. I'm, I'm happy to recommend to everyone. Do you know if people look it up now? Do they look it up under Calm With Horses or the new title? Maybe if the they one. look it up on Google under Calm With Horses, I think it pulls up the new title's IMDb page. But I, I would probably recommend looking up The Shadow of Violence instead, even though that's a terrible title. I was and, just about to ask which one you like more. <laughs> oh, it's definitely Calm With Horses because that's the point of the film. Um, so anyways, on to your number 10, Mike. Жизнь переходит на мирные рельсы. Работать будем много, как учит нас вождь. All right, my number 10 movie of the year so far is Beanpole, the sophomore feature from the Russian director Kantemir Balagov. Uh, this is Say that three times fast for me. Kantemir Balagov, Kantemir Balagov, Kantemir Balagov. Better than me. Uh, there will be plenty of names on my list that I cannot do that for, so I'm ah. glad we already did that. You're welcome. I got lucky. Um, this film is set in mid-40s Leningrad, uh, just at the end of World War II. Um, it is about this complex relationship between two women who live in the city that has just been absolutely pummeled by the war and is just in the process of trying to rebuild while everyone is completely exhausted and scarred and traumatized. Um, one of the women has been um, in Leningrad uh, throughout the war while the other one has actually um, been closer to the front lines and she's coming back to Leningrad. Um, and one of them loses a child at the beginning of the film, and that um, complicates their relationship in uh, a number of different ways. Um, so it's very much just about these women's lives in the wake of such a devastating um, war in, in their, as their city is trying to rebuild. Um, it is uh, very bleak and can be very uncomfortable. It's quite brutal at times. Um, I think uh, just how miserable um some of what these people have to go through is is what some turned some people off about this movie but i think what really helps to offset that is that it's just absolutely gorgeous when i think about a movie that is set in the aftermath of war i think about really um muted colors like grays and browns that just suggest you know the rubble of it all but this is actually incredibly colorful there is all these um uh, reds and greens uh, that really kind of warmed the film up, which I think really helps with the bleakness of the material. And it's beautifully acted. Um, uh, I suggest checking it out. Beanpole. My number 10 is Eliza Hitman's Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Starine. Jeez, I'm going to forget her name now. Do you remember it for me? Sydney Flanagan. Sydney Flanagan and her debut role. Uh, with a supporting role by Talia Ryder, who I'm going to be championing a little bit later on down the road here. Um, this film, I really, really like as a piece. It, you know, when something's your number 10, it it is symbolic of how great a piece it is. 
but it, it was falling down my list all week. And I will say that I, I think that maybe it doesn't stick quite as much as I imagined it would when I was um, in that, that recent week after it, where it felt a lot more sticky. Mm. Um, I, I, I do think that there's some thing about it that kind of keeps you at arm's length. Um, and the further I get from the entry, the less passionate I am about it, um, which you know, is the opposite of a, of a different film that I, I do classify as somewhat similar, um, that I'll be talking about later. And I'd also lump this together with, um, the assistant, um, which I, you know, I could easily swap this in the assistant. I could swap this with yours and yourself. I could even swap it with Vitalina Varela, which is, you know, in like number 32 on my titles, just because, um, those films all are a little bit more sticky, a little bit more resonant for me. Um, but there is something really special about how she brings this world to life and allows these characters to create that world. And that's what's, you know, really keeping that on my list here. So, um, you know, not to be backhanded in my compliments of my number 10. I just want to maybe dampen it since um, everything that I've been hearing is just so positive. I do want to, you know, voice a little bit of what I'm seeing in retrospect. Fair enough. On to the squanderies. All right, the squandries, where we pick an actor and an actress whose potential or abilities we think have been squandered recently. Are we doing actor or actress first? How would you prefer to start? How about actress? Let's start with actress. My turn? Your turn. All right, my squandered actress for 2020 so far is Anna DeArmas, who has only been in I've only seen one of the films she has been in this year. I think she's been in three. There was a Netflix release called Sergio, which I didn't see. There was one called The Night Manager, which, which is I didn't now see. on Netflix. Oh, okay. Uh, I heard. I haven't heard many uh, responses to uh, Sergio. I think The Night Manager got pretty savage reviews. Uh, and she was in Olivier Alsayas' Wasp Network. That is the one that I did see. And she's actually one of the best things about that movie. And she just does not get nearly enough screen time and that is really why she's on this list is when i have seen her she is so terrific and uh i think she has better movies around the corner but a little bit of a rough start to the year for anna diarmas um who i think is uh really just slowly kind of marching towards uh greater stardom um i think uh you know Cinephiles easily know her name, but I would not consider her a household name. I think she is uh, headed that direction, though. Um, But uh, so far, some potential has been squandered, if you ask me. I wholeheartedly agree. She's one of my favorite performers and has had very little to do that's of quality since Knives Out, which I really didn't like. Um, So my selection here is Natalie Portman, who has not yet had a film out this year. But when I look at her filmography, I can honestly tell you that the last time I was thrilled to leave the theater was 2016, watching her performance Mm. in Jackie. Song to song, I did not get to see in theaters, or else I would certainly have perhaps considered that. However, I think that her role there is a little bit secondary. So, uh, I mean, I love that film. I don't feel like she's responsible for that film. So the, the last film she was in that I love was three years ago. Song to Song was 2017. Since then, she's been in some music videos. She's been in some ads. She was in a very funny episode of Angie Tribeca. But then we have Vox Lux, The Death of 
and Life of John F. Donovan, Annihilation, Lucy in the Sky, Avengers Endgame. I'm not passionate about any of those. At best, I'm mixed to slightly positive on um, John F. Donovan. I really think that she is one of the greatest living performers, and I think that her projects um, in the last three years have not been reflective of the the art and the um, just capacity to to wow and move audiences that she is capable of. I am right there with you. I don't know that she even has anything on the horizon that looks appealing. Does she? She has three titles she's attached to that um, either only have a writer or only have a director. So I don't know that any of those are super exciting to me. She is going to be in Thor Love and Thunder, which like I'm, I'm not going to say I'm not excited for that because I love Taika Waititi. I love Chris Hemsworth. I love Natalie Portman. Like that sounds like a great time. But when I'm talking, what I'm talking about is Natalie Portman in Song to Song, Natalie Portman in Jackie, Natalie Portman in Black Swan. I want a a prestige picture that that is not commercial fare from her. You know, she's very, very good. And I feel like throwing her in comic books is just as upsetting to me as seeing Florence Pugh do that. Word. Good pick. On to your squandered actor, Michael. All right, my squandered actor is Gael Garcia Bernal, who I saw in, again, Wasp Network, as well as Pablo Lorraine's Emma, which uh, has not been commercially distributed yet in the U.S., but uh, we covered it on the podcast when Mubi did a special screening of it. Um, Neither of us cared for that movie, Emma. Um, I don't particularly like the seriousness of the material he's given there. I like what he's doing in Wasp Network, um, but like all, uh, like most members of the cast in Wasp Network, uh, he does not get enough to really, he does not get enough breathing room to really bring his character to life. That's a very overstuffed movie. Um, I think one of my favorite roles uh, that he did was actually in the show Mozart in the Jungle, where it's a much lighter kind of character he's playing that has a comic bent to it. That's really my favorite mode of his. Um, I feel like that has gone maybe underappreciated, um, and he's gotten some more um, solemn character types. Um, I uh, yeah, I think this this lighter side of him is is yet to be tapped into um, from what I have seen in 2020, at least. So that's my squandered actor, Gael Garcia Bernal. I love him, and I completely agree that Mozart in the Jungle is currently his best role that I've seen in in recent years. Um, He's just a a special quality that I don't see used as the comedic lead. Like, he is the the yang to the yin that is Benicio del Toro, you know, like Mm. as serious and and as bloodthirsty and also comedic as Benicio can get there. I think that Gael can do that just at a different level, a a different layer of subtlety in between. Um, And I think that his range is almost just as broad and it's very disappointing to see how hemmed in he is. Yeah. But on to my selection, I have, once again, chosen someone who I have not seen more than uh, one movie of this year that came out this year. Um, and this is Daniel Radcliffe. Um, so it's been about, let's see, running the math. It's been four years 
since a film has come out from Daniel Radcliffe that I was decidedly positive on. Um, it has been, oh, the same round, range of time, four years since I loved a movie that I walked out of seeing him in. That movie was Swiss Army Man mm. with Paul Dano. And the other film that I really, really responded well to uh, was not in theaters, and that was Imperium, in which he kind of does a mm. little bit of a undercover detective American History X type of a thriller. Um, which was very, very engrossing. Great character work from him. Um, he had also done a, a TV show that I'm forgetting the name of with John Hamm about, about being surgeons or doctors. You know, mm. that he was on this great bent. And then we get some very disappointing entries like Jungle, um, Beast of Burden, Playmobil the Movie, Guns Akimbo. Personally, I did not like the interactive film unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt Kimmy versus the reverend in which he plays a supporting actor and he also had a film come out this year called escape from Pretoria that I've not seen I've heard very mixed things on some people are swearing by it as a directorial debut others are kind of rebuking it so for me it's Daniel Radcliffe is you know the one of those unsung character actors he really reminds me of an Andy Serkis someone who can really mold himself and change and he's letting himself take these stupid roles where he's just like the side character essentially you know guns akimbo he's a the lead but he's like a, a just a dumb side character who has no personality that isn't interesting i just want to see him take those those big swings even if they're misses that are comedic um character acting like i saw with swiss army man or those big swings to play someone who we definitely know he's not but he kind of turns into in imperium um so my selection is daniel radcliffe good pick all right michael what is your number nine film on the year my number nine is your number ten it's Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, from Eliza Hittman. Uh, it's her third feature. Um, it's about a young girl's uh, process of aborting an unwanted pregnancy. Um, sounds like I maybe have, um, like, like this has stuck with me a little bit more so than it, than it did for you. Um, you know, for a film that is very much a procedural, we're following this girl on a journey to New York in order to... Uh, get an abortion. Um, you're right. There is maybe something a little distancing about it. I think that's partly um, just the nature of the character. She uh, is not particularly expressive or sort of searching her face for clues as to what she is feeling, although they are clearly not uh, positive feelings for mm -hmm. much of the film. Um, so I completely get that. Um I really like the direction here and just this um, kind of gentleness and tenderness that's in the form that just seems to uh, have a, a lot of reverence for what this girl has to go through and how lonely this process can be, even though she has a friend, a cousin um, along with her for it. Um, that smooth, slow camera work, I think, just really seems to kind of um, caress her throughout these really uncomfortable appointments and interactions um, that just uh, feels very authorially expressive to me. Like that, that form is just kind of um, expressing a lot of uh, care and attention for her. Um, so yeah, uh, never rarely, sometimes always. My number nine. I completely agree about its merit. And um, I, I will say that it does feel like a monologue written by Hitman with 
characters playing these actors or actors playing these characters where really it's just the director speaking to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is the power of it. That's the resonance that keeps it on my 10, but still keeps me at arm's length. Um, My number nine is Davy Rothbart's documentary. start with the latest from southeast dc because that's where one man is dead and two others injured following gunfire overnight and why neighbors are upset with the crime rate as well kevin people got guns around there i don't know what people names but some people do don chase murphy he got shot 17 times Dante was just playing on the basketball court and he got shot. Because they was playing basketball and Dante won and the man got mad so he was pulled out of the game. He shot the ball, him and my cousin Brandon. Nobody use no weapons, just use your fist, ease your weapons. 17 blocks in which he uses two decades of intimate home video to tell the story of the Sanford family who struggles with addiction and gun violence lead to a journey of love, loss, and acceptance. Um, Davey, uh, who is the director here, had a personal relationship with this family and had collected this footage and shot some of this footage as well as these family members throughout the telling of the story and we start with a very young boy who has his whole life ahead of him who is kind of the shining star in this family who is going through all this um this trouble and this this difficulty in washington dc and he is going to school and he he's working hard he has a plan for his life he develops a relationship and becomes engaged and he dies very, very tragically. And I don't want to give away why he might have died or, or if anyone's to blame, but this is one of the most human, authentic pieces that I've seen. There is a bit of a quality of acting once he's dead and the family members are being interviewed by each other, which I don't think that I'd find um, bothersome. I also don't love it, but I, I think that there is a level of honesty almost to the performance aspect that kind of shows just as much as anything else would that when you know that you're being watched, you do put on this performative aspect um, when it's tied to something bigger. And I think that um, the collection of this work, editing it and getting the story um, shared with the public is um, just as important as the content of the film. So I, I really responded well to this documentary and um, I, I would highly recommend watching it. I believe you can currently rent it from many different sources and I, I would highly encourage you to do so. And once you do, you can go back to our doc talk from earlier in the year where we covered it in detail. Correct. What are we on to? We are on to top ensembles. What are your 
top three ensembles. Would you like to go in descending or ascending order? Start with number three. Number three. We'll go back and forth. Sure. What's yours? Ensembles were a little tough for me this year. I don't think there have been a great number of truly ensemble-driven films. So a couple of these are maybe uh, using the word a little loosely. but And my list might be reflective of that since I don't have a film in it. There you go. Uh, number three, I've already talked about. It is a beanpole, which isn't really about two particular women, but much of this movie plays out in a hospital ward um, where the two women work after uh, one of them has come back from war. Uh, both of these uh, actresses are phenomenal. Um, and while they are the central focus, I think the casting of just all these different uh, men who have come back from war with all kinds of traumas and injuries and pains um i think just in, it really enriches the world even though you're not getting big performances out of a lot of these side characters um it fills um just the, the world we're in with a lot of um lived humanity and, and and pain um so an ensemble driven film in an unconventional sense of the word but um uh a very good one beanpole what is your number three my number three is, I believe, a Showtime limited series, if I'm remembering correctly, called The Loudest Voice, in which we have a procedural, um, episodic story of the same contents, essentially, as Bombshell, without any of the um, the fiction that was added to create the story of Bombshell. This is very much just a paint-by-numbers um sense of what happened and was much more informative to me as a project. The, uh, the project's cast was headlined by Russell Crowe featured Sienna Miller in an absolutely, uh, fantastic work by makeup and costume artists to make her not look like herself at all, but still carry all of the acting chops that she is. So, um, under, scene for i i really like her and i i'd like to make an effort to watch more of her stuff because i think that she's an overlooked actress these days uh naomi watts annabelle wallace and seth mcfarlane run out or round out the premiere list of cast but i could read all these supporting actors to you that do such a phenomenal job to make the fox news headquarters seem real to make the newspaper um place that his wife is running seem there's just so much um that is dependent upon performance to create this world that all these supporting actors do and i this is a a full tier up from my next consideration so this is my number three cool 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 what is your number two michael my number two is baku rao a brazilian film that uh i will talk more about later, so I'll keep this relatively brief. Uh, this is a film about a rural Brazilian village that finds itself uh, threatened by some outside forces. There's no real lead performance here, although some of the actors and actresses do stand out a bit. Um, it is very ensemble driven. It is about a community as a whole and uh, the uh, threat as a whole that they are um Faced with. I thought that um, the main character was the coffins. Yeah, I like that interpretation. Um, you know, to the extent that this is a movie about uh, about community in a way, I think um, uh, a, a, a lot of these um, 
people just just bring it a lot of life. I don't know. I don't I don't have that much <laughs> to say about it at this point. Um, I'll have more to say about it when we get to our top tens. But um, giant cast um, with lots of act, uh, professionals and non-professionals who I think um, work together in interesting ways. Um, Bakurao. That's my number two. What is your number two? My number two is a HBO limited series directed by Derek Sion France that we will be talking about later. So I will also keep this short and just list the sheer audacity of talent that is present in this limited series. Mark Ruffalo playing two characters. Catherine Hahn, Juliette Lewis, who you might remember from Columbus, Michael. Mm. Melissa Leo, Imogen Poots, Rosie O'Donnell, Michael Grayeyes, Bruce Greenwood, Rob Hubel, Archie Punjabi. Those are just some of the huge talent actors that make this world from Derek Sion France sing. I cannot say enough how wonderful this project is and highly recommend it and will continue to do so later in the show. Lots of suspense in this category. Your number one, Michael. My number one is Corey Finley's Bad Education, his second feature. This stars Hugh Jackman, Allison Janney, Ray Romano, uh, Geraldine Vishvanathan. Awesome cast. Um, uh, it is about, um, well, I'll talk later uh, about what it's about when we get to it in other categories. But um, this is a truly ensemble-driven film, I think, even though we have uh, our focus on Hugh Jackman's character. Um, one member of the cast, uh, who I particularly liked was Annalie Ashford, um, who plays a younger member of the school administration that this film is about, um, who was new to me and is just a, a perfect example of the kind of, uh, side characters who really add to, to the fun of this movie. Um, I'll be watching out for her and yeah, just great acting across the board here. Bad education. What is your number one? My number one is something we will talk about immediately after this section, but it is called The Outsider. It is also a limited series from HBO based on the novel from Stephen King, The Outsider. It stars Ben Mendelsohn and Cynthia Erivo. Supporting actors to that cast are Jason Bateman, who directs the first episode, Julianne Nicholson, Mark Menchaca, who will also be coming up later, Mayor Winningham, Bill Camp, Derek Cecil, Patty Considine, Yule Vasquez, and I could continue, but you might not recognize the names past that. The world that is conjured, the quality of performance from our leads, Ben and Cynthia, is simply arresting they carry the entire project themselves this is a project that has many different directors um so you can really tell that the performers are what keep it together and make it sing um so i I highly recommend this uh and that is my number one ensemble excellent on to your number eight michael my number eight is the only miniseries I have on my list. Definitely the first time in a while, if ever, that I've had a miniseries on my top And it's ten. too low. 
I believe you will talk about it later. So I'm, I will give you the honor of maybe discussing it in more detail. But it is Normal People. It is a miniseries on Hulu based on a novel by uh, Sally Rooney. You know, when we were together in first year of college. That was kind of a perfect time in my life, to be honest. It'd be awkward if something happened with us. No one would have to know. I didn't know your mom worked in the Sheridan's house. What's Marianne like in her natural habitat? I don't know. I don't see much of her. We hook up. Secretly. <laughs> like some kind of game. That's actually really hard. We don't want people going around town saying that knacker is dating my sister. It's not what I want anymore. I feel nothing for you. Nothing. Why are you saying this? Her new boyfriend is more in line with her social class. Are you dating anyone problematic at the moment? I haven't had a midnight call from you in a while. So corrupt and sexy. Would you say your feelings are involved? Obviously. Who is it obvious to? It is a romantic drama of sorts, 10 to 12 episodes, 30 minutes long. Um, it stars Par Paul Mescal and Daisy Edgar Jones. Um, it's a romantic drama about this um, uh, young couple who meet when they are in high school and sort of this on and off relationship they have over um, uh, 10 years or so. It follows them through college uh, and just beyond college. Um it is um, very sensitively written and performed. It's weird. I'm almost sort of like begrudgingly putting it on my list because I do think I tend to gravitate towards uh, works that are a little bit more um, pushing at the edges of like conventional form. And I think this is very conventional in a lot of ways, but the emotion just feels really true between these two uh, people who clearly feel so, so much for each other. And I think the angle to the series that I really, really responded to has to do with how their senses of self-worth or lack thereof really affect their their relationship with each other and how that sort of drives their um, senses of whether or not they deserve this this clearly very strong love that they have for each other. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I was, I was very, very moved by it. I think it's phenomenally acted um, and uh, highly recommend it. Normal people. I would just quickly second that and admit that I did watch that six hour project in one sitting and that it will be talked about much, much later on this episode. Cool. Cool. My number eight is the outsider, the HBO limited series with the direct, uh, the pilot episode directed by Jason Bateman. Um, there's very little I can talk about the show without spoiling, unfortunately, because the entire premise of it has to do with certain characters dying immediately and shapeshifters. 
Um, so all I will say is that it is a mystery film that is, uh, or not film, sorry. It feels like a film in past tense, though. It is a, a mystery limited series in which a paranormal investigator, um, you could say, who presents as just a normal detective um, who works for hire, Cynthia Revo, but does have a paranormal bent to her and thinks outside the box, has to grapple with a cop who is the opposite of that and thinks that anything woo-woo is bullshit, played by Ben Mendelsohn. And their fulcrum back and forth and their interactions really enriched the project, as well as Ben Mendelsohn's uh, wife, who's played by Mayor Winningham in one of the most memorable um, performances by a supporting actor uh, or actress, rather, this year that I can remember. I can just remember all her scenes and how deeply emotional she was and how she she was forcing this bear of an of a actor Ben Mendelsohn back on his heels, you know, we just watched, um, baby teeth last week and, you know, he's one of the best parts about it. And we know how ferocious he is as a performer and just to see him rock back on his heels by an unassuming, um, wife character is, is just so special, I think in the form of storytelling in the lens format. Um, so I really responded to this entire series. Uh, there's a name, uh, or there's a fellow by the name of Mark Menchak. I want to say, Mark Menchaca, who I've never seen before and I will be talking about later, but I, I think that his turn in this project is one of the most fascinating turns I've seen in the lens format medium this year. One I still need to get to. On to Top Doc. All right. Just one for this category, our number one documentary of the year so far. Mine is Heimat is a Space in Time, which is a German documentary by the filmmaker Thomas Heise. This is a very long film. This is three plus hours, three and a half hours, I want to say, maybe a little longer than that. Uh, so this one is asking uh, a lot from you, N not just in its uh, runtime, but in its uh, format as well. This is um, uh, what it essentially is, is Thomas Heise. Um, sifting through um, written correspondence and letters written between various members of his family over multiple generations. Um, and he reads these letters um, and other kinds of documents without a lot of context um, in voiceover narration while on screen for the entirety of the documentary. We're seeing um, different images of uh, Germany in uh, this high contrast black and white cinematography that sometimes kind of syncs up with the content of the um, material that he's reading and sometimes not so much. Um, but it is both sort of this multi-generational portrait of his own family while at the same time sort of tracing, you know, um, almost 100 years of German history. Uh, and it can be... Um, all kinds of things. It can be harrowing. It can be touching. Um, you, you, you learn about his family at the same time that you're seeing how sort of inextricable these um, personal experiences are from broader uh, political German history. Um, and, you know, just to give you an example, we might be um, uh, hearing him talk about um, 
his family's concerns about deportation. Um, and, you know, at various points of the film, we're watching just contemporary footage of um, trains as they move, uh, you know, around in Germany. And, you know, just that motif alone is so loaded and harrowing in the context of, of German history that, um, you know, this is it, it's kind of an exercise in free association in a way um, that I thought was just super, super stimulating and rich. Um, if you're willing to, uh, go for it, it does, um, take some work because there is no context really for the material that you're hearing about. Um, so I think it's really interesting if you are up for it. Hi, Matt is a space and time. So I've created a new show award. It's called the elephant sitting still award. And Michael, oh, you just earned it with that selection. That is a great doc. award. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, my top documentary I will be talking about later on my top 10 list, which I think might be a first, which I'm very pleased to see my own adaptive behavior towards documentaries in my top 10. Um, and that entry is Luke Lawrenson's Midnight Family, which we covered on the same documentary, or Doc Talk rather, episode that we covered 17 Blocks on, um, as well as the... Uh, what she said, Pauline Kale documentary, if mm. I'm remembering correctly. And this essentially highlights a family living in Mexico City, uh, attempting to run a private business that interacts with the institutions of Mexico. And their responsibility is to run a private ambulance for profit um, while still maintaining the ability to save lives. And I think that heroin is a very good single word descriptor for the journey that I go on with this picture. Um, briefly, I, I can't stop thinking about an end scene of the movie, which I believe I, I covered in that um, discussion that we had, in which they go to pick the boy up, and there's just people that need help that are being driven past. Um, and it, it's just really reflective of the institutions of Mexico based on my understanding without having any judgment or any um, solutions or, or anything besides just a passive observation without any claim. And I think that that's one of my favorite things in documentaries is either a, a passive understanding of something based on visuals that are undoubtedly real or super intensive investigative pieces of journalism. And this is the, the former. And I, I can't imagine being embedded with this family and seeing what they're going through and, and how difficult that could be as a filmmaker and just straddling all those different lines um, while getting these great pieces of cinematography with these chase scenes and the beautiful lights of the city in real time with real lives on the line. It's just luscious filmmaking with so much depth and message. Um, I I think that this is not only my top documentary um, of the year so far, it is my top documentarian um, selection as well. Awesome, awesome doc. Completely second that choice. On to number seven. My number seven film of the year so far is Baku Rao. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
que vocês estão fazendo isso. There's so much you can do with a life. Getting back to this one, uh, this is directed by Kleber Mendonça Fio and Juliano Dorneas. It's a Brazilian Three times film. Fast, please? Nope, can't do it. You already asked me once. You uh, one a day. You got to pick one. Dang it. Uh, it's a Brazilian film, as I mentioned. Um, and yeah, just b- plot wise to recap a little bit what I already said. It is about a village, a Brazilian uh, rural village called Bacurau, uh, set uh, more or less in uh, current day, though that's never exactly specified. Uh, that is uh, living peacefully until they find themselves um, threatened by some outside forces that I won't say too much about. I kind of think this is a movie where. Uh, the less you know, the better. A um, few things I like about this movie. One is that it just seems to be pulling from multiple different genres, and I think it juggles different tones in some really cool ways. This is really pulpy in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways. It's sort of a western in the sense of this town um, having to protect itself from outside forces. It has little allusions to sci-fi where. Uh, there's a drone we see that looks like a UFO. It can feel just kind of like social realism or documentary because of the cast and how earlier I talked about how some of these people just don't even look like actors. And it just feels like um, almost more like documentary footage of these people living um, in rural Brazil. And I think it brings together all of these different kind of cinematic influences in some very fun and satisfying ways. Um, while at the same time being this very kind of potent allegory for any marginalized group that has been threatened by oppression or uh, deprivation of resources or worse, just plain extinction. Um, and it gives us the satisfaction of, of watching uh, this stand-in group for those those groups of people fight back. Um, and I think there's a lot of just pulpy satisfaction in that. And that's that combination of pulp with something socially meaningful that I think is just cool. And it's really idiosyncratic filmmaking with, um, zooms and close-ups and surveillance style footage. Um, I think he's clearly a, a, a cinephile, both these directors are, and I think it shows, um, yeah, Baku Rao. My favorite single scene is the nude shootout. Great scene. Um, I, I do have one follow-up before I move on. Do you view this as a directorial debut or not? Because Definitely. I was trying to read through all their IMDb credits, and it's like they they have projects that were never released or never released mm. outside Brazil. Um, and I think mm. like one of them had directed telenovelas or something, but had never directed a film, but had like an, a 48-minute mm. short or something. So I just... Mm. I, I haven't figured out whether or not to include this in my directorial debut list because I would rec I would treat these directors um, with a lot more reverence maybe than I would treat my personal feelings towards this film, which I didn't respond highly to. Yeah. I don't know about a uh, U.S. commercial distribution, but it's, it's not a debut. Um, I think it's uh Kleber Mendoza Fio's third film. Uh, there was one called neighboring sounds, one called Aquarius. Um, Aquarius was, was critically revered. Is the revere the right word? Yeah. Uh, critically placed. That was on a bunch of top of the decade lists. Okay. Um, and I think his co-director here was like a production designer on some of his other films. Gotcha. Um, so that might be, that might be his. Yeah. And I didn't know whether or not debut. I'd yeah. include it as a directorial debut if only one is Oh, the I think you would director. love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So my number seven is a film that we also recently discussed. 
This is the Darden Brothers Young Ahmed. I adore this film. It is light on its feet. It has fantastic handheld cinematography. It does not uh, belay the point. It doesn't linger unnecessarily for plot beats. It doesn't try to force feed you. Um, it doesn't stay for 12 more minutes of learning exactly what they think. It just goes and you have to catch up to it. And you know that you disapprove of young Ahmed, but you also feel great empathy and and love towards this character. Almost the entire film, I think for me, I, I, I felt a love for this character, the entire film, even though I disapproved of his actions. I, which I think is very interesting filmmaking when you can almost make me view your character as that father may have viewed his son or that mother may view her son with this deep love and disapproval. And I think that that in cinematic storytelling through, through this lens format is just one of the, one of the beauties of telling a story with a camera. And uh, I just find it so special in retrospect and the world that comes to life and these side characters that I still see that girl on the farm. I still see those cows there. I believe that they're there. And I, I'd like to believe that young Ahmed is slowly recuperating um, while being taught by that teacher. Um, so that, that is my selection. And I, I really love this film and I, almost expect it to continue to go up my list rather than leave it. I like that one as well. I really hoped to get uh, the young actress you mentioned, the girl who uh, we saw on the farm on my list. Didn't quite happen, but she is great. Great movie. Honorable mention. Good. Good. On to which stars were born so far in 2020, Michael. I know your selections, and I adore them. Why don't we start with you first? Um, do you want to take turns again, or do you want to get both out of the way? Um, I'll get them both out of the way, because they're from the same uh, film, miniseries. Uh, we're nah, going back. I got them. I yeah. got them, folks. He called normal people a film. <laughs> Definitely not a film. It's too uh, late now. <laughs> it's on the record. But yes, going back to normal people, um, this category is where we uh, call out new actors and actresses who we think are, whose stardom is being born with these particular works. Um, my choices are the leads from normal people, Paul Mescal and Daisy Edgar Jones. I mean, had, talk about on-screen chemistry. Like, these these two people are, are just phenomenal together. Oh, I like, thought they invented it. I kind of just want them to do more stuff together, if yep. that's possible. Uh, whether that's normal people or not. I really hope there is not more normal people. Um, Maybe but, we can uh, get an Irish remake of the Before trilogy? That I, I, I could see that. Uh, yeah. Um, the, the, they're, 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 they're both great... Um, um, yeah, I don't know, uh, boy, what, what to say about these, these, these debut people. performers that have never been in any other projects. Yeah, you would, you would never know it. They're, they're supremely talented. Um, you know, these are really pained characters we're watching for, for so much of this series who are, who are really sort of kind of starving for each 
each other in a way um, and spend so much of the series apart and just the that deep longing is very, very real. And they get it across in some really subtle ways and some bigger ways, but they never go too big. Um, I, I think they both are just kind of natural talents. Um, and I think they both have uh, uh, big things ahead of them. I wholeheartedly endorse those actors who I I can't imagine how you could play such complex characters with such deep wells of emotion without any bona fides. Like, it just makes no sense to me. Um, I'm going to start with my Star is Born selection for actress, and that is Talia Ryder from Eliza Hitman's Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. She plays the supporting actress um, cousin character who has her own run-in with... Um, you know, some of the um, more negative masculine forces that are explored within this piece. Um, However, the agency that leads her there makes her a little bit, um, makes that whole sequence quite complex. Um, And I think that she balances and plays her entire character arc here with such um, trueness and and a a lack of um, any gossamer acting quality to it. It really uh, reminds me of uh, Thomas and Mackenzie in, in Leave No Trace in her first performance, mm-hmm. where it just felt like naked honesty, where someone was just being someone and they were never not living the life that I was viewing. And that is just such a special quality. And she's so young and seems to have um, this great talent. So I, I feel very comfortable like I did with Julia Garner, just saying, like, the star is born here. She's going to go on and she's going to do great things. I don't know that she's ever going to be hugely famous, but I, I truly believe that she will go on to do great things. Great pick. My second choice here is a actor by the name of Cosmo Jarvis, who was in the film I referenced earlier, Calm with Horses, which was My Wounded Soldier. He was previously in the film opposite Florence Pugh, Lady Macbeth. That was a picture I didn't quite care for, um, but I did notice him in. And I I, I haven't seen it since then, but I, I do remember his character and kind of being um, quite taken with his magnetism. And here he does a complete 180 of a character. He's, um, he's playing someone who is not smart, who dropped out, who is a gangster, who is a potential drug user, and he is kind of the the muscle for Barry Cohen in this picture. And by the end, this character has gone from stupid, possibly illiterate, to complex, loving, arresting, and delivers an extensive monologue into a phone that is, I think, some of the best phone work I've seen since The Guilty and Tom Hardy in Locke. Um, I, I can't compliment him enough. I think that he will unfortunately be cast to to do uh, comic book films, um, mm. which I, I, I am happy that he will make that money, but I, I do expect to see him eventually make some of those artsy films and maybe, you know, get a Nolan picture or get in um, on who made... Um, who made the picture Lost City of Zed? Oh, James Gray. I could see him in a James Gray picture, just a complete character actor breakdown. Um, so I, this is my my selection for um, which stars were born. Both of these had the honorable mention of Daisy Edgar Jones and Paul Mezcal, just to be clear of how much I love those characters. But you took Can't them. Can't forget them. So I got to do these. We'll spread the love around. 
on to number six. All right. My number six of the year so far is Bad Education from Corey Finley. Coming back to this film, uh, this is currently streaming on HBO. It is based on a true story about the embezzlement scandal that rocked a Long Island school just district in the early 2000s. Um, has a great cast with Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney, as I already talked about a little bit. Um, it's Finley's second film after Thoroughbreds from a couple years back. Um, I think the tone of this thing is just so sharply and smartly handled. It's very sort of ironic in its uh, use of music and following these administrators um, who have been stealing from the school large, large sums of money. And uh, I'll talk about the music a little bit later in a sidebar category, but I think that plays a very big role in uh, telling us just uh, that everything is all well and good, while that is very much not the case behind the scenes at this school. Um, and I think the theme is really sharply handled this theme about, uh, greediness as a slippery slope and teachers being tempted to, um, put their hands in the cookie jar, if you will, and take, uh, school money. Um, and I really like how that's sort of spread, how that idea sort of spread out over the cast. We see some characters who show, no remorse whatsoever um, once they have been caught, like Allison Janney, who seems more annoyed than anything else that she has to now pay the consequences um, for the money she has embezzled versus younger men or younger members of the staff who are just doing it for the first time and are, and are hesitant about it, but um, are uh, succumbing to temptation to uh, take public money and go shopping. Um, and I think it, uh, cements Finley's interest in sort of upper middle class white America. Um, I think uh, he's developing kind of an interesting focus while Thoroughbreds was about two teens, two white rich teen girls trying to kill one of their stepdads. I think the milieu is very consistent with sort of this wealthy suburbia that puts him sort of um, alongside, you know, Alexander Payne to me um, in the film like Election, which I think that education was compared a lot to um really smart filmmaking and it's on hbo as i said bad education i dislike that film but that's all right on to my number six i don't have much to say since i've already said it my number six is luke lawrenson's midnight family i would love to dig deeper into the content of that piece however if it's spoiled, I think that it really undercuts the journey that you go on with this family. I will just I agree. reiterate that it's deeply empathetic without actually attempting to be empathetic in its um, descriptors of being shot and edited in as true a way as possible. You're not spending a bunch of time. You just see the conditions that they're living in, and it's very easy to forget about those conditions, but after you see what you see and then you remember the conditions where they literally don't have mattresses, it's very hard to judge these people. Um, it's very hard to make assertions. And I think that that's what makes it an expert documentary and why I, I would once again equivocate this to Luke getting the best documentarian, best director, best cinematographer. You know, he's my number six, I think, on the year um, just as a, as a artist. 
Great pick. On to top three official soundtracks. Michael's least favorite category, folks. Have I said that before? Oh, that's on the record. Really? That's it's weird. the opposite. All he does is love music and film. I was going to say, that seems odd. Um, I have a tie at number three because I just couldn't decide and I still can't decide. So I'll just be brief. I have two uh, at my number three spot for original soundtracks. I have Shirley, the film by Josephine Decker, just streaming on Hulu. The score is by Tamar Cawley. Uh, that film is a psychodrama of sorts about the writer Shirley Jackson and this is a score full of uh, really sharp, scratchy strings that really um, sort of intensify the anxiety of that film. Uh, love it. Very cool score. And then I also have Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. The score there is by uh, the art, uh, musician Julia Holter, um, which is a little bit more ambient. It's kind of this wash of synths and reverb. And it has kind of that dreamy quality that just feeds that kind of gentleness that pervades over that film. Um, two very different scores. I just couldn't really pick between them. Both highly recommended on Spotify and other outlets. Check them out. What's your number three? So now that I've heard you balance, I, I might be doing a pivot and just throwing an honorable mention since I'm not going to be able to mention this film in any other category and I just watched it. Why not? And that film is the highly original, extreme talented group of Rachel McAdams and Will Ferrell in Eurovision Song Contest. Full title, Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Sokka. This is a Netflix original film that just came out yesterday. I think that it's getting kind of panned, but there's still a, a dedicated group that likes it. It's a very, you know, below the belt type of comedy. The The songs are the humor. Woke up at night I heard floating chords They guided me To the highland fjord Above the clouds On a mountain peak There he sat And he began to speak They appear to have been, um, all original music appears to have been written by the same individual, Otley Orvison, or Orvarson, and I just really enjoy it. It's so, um, just the the humor I, I found sublime. What can I say? I just like a good comedy. So I, I will sneak that in to this category as my honorable mention in the episode. And now get to my real number three, High Note. 
This is a film um, that is essentially about the music industry. It has Kelvin Harrison Jr. It has Dakota Johnson. It has... um, Jeez, now I'm forgetting her name. But it has Ice Cube. It has a a lovely performance by Tracy Ellis Ross. There's her name. Mm. A little bit hard for me to remember. She's uh, known for her role in Blackish as the the mother uh, opposite of Anthony Anderson. And the original music here is just fantastic. I had no idea that Tracy Ellis Ross was capable of performing at that level. Um, So I just have to um, hem this in to my number three. What is your number two, Michael? My number two is from Bad Education, as I was just talking about. The score is by Michael Abels, um, who's done some other uh, prominent scores, most recently Us, which I think was on my OST list last time. Yes, it was. Um, Yeah, uh, this is great stuff. This is kind of an orchestral, kind of your typical kind of classical film score um, that has this kind of like phony grandeur to it in a way that... Um, is 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 heavily ironic as we're watching Hugh Jackman, this this public school administrator, um, primp himself and make sure he's always looking sharp and dapper, um, and is so well beloved by so many members of the district and parents of students, um, and the the score is just absolutely essential to um, feeding the ironic tone of that movie. Um, and uh, just a pleasant listen on its own. Uh, Bad Education, that's from Michael Abels, my number two. What is your number two? My number two is Invisible Life, which you will get the full original title of when we talk about that later on the show. But the score was composed by, and all original music was done by Benedict Schieffer. Um, this soundtrack is best described by me as magical surrealism. It just feels like it is cueing me into the importance of moments in a way that I can comprehend while simultaneously still completely entrancing me in the mystery that underlies the film and these two separated sisters. Um, I'll talk about it later, so I, I won't continue, but I really, really love this magical score. What's your number one, Mike? My number one is the score from Pablo Lorraine's Emma Which is by 
the uh, experimental electronic artist uh, Nicholas Jar. Uh, there is lots of dance in this film, Emma, which neither of us really cared for, but man, this, uh, score is dope. Um, it's, yeah, electronic, very rhythmic, beat driven, um, kind of, kind of pared down, but kind of club-ish, which you would expect from a movie that features lots of, uh, dancing. It's, it's dance music, but in a sort of minimalistic sense of the genre um catchy stuff i like it that's my number one (laughs) emma my number one is a film we will be talking about later multiple times and that film is called last and first men listen patiently are the last men earnestly desire to communicate with you. The score of Last and First Men is by Johan Johansson. It is also his directorial debut. Um, I won't him and Ha, it's as good as all his other stuff that you know him for, whether it's Arrival or Sicario. It is an arresting soundtrack um, that in a film that essentially has no content other than uh, narration by Tilda Swinton and stark images of structures and landscapes. The score is what carries um, equally the load between the narration and the cinematography. So uh, this is his final composition from what I'm aware of. And it is one of his loveliest. I would highly recommend it. Cool. Cool. On to number five. All right. My number five is yourself and yours by the prolific Korean director, Hong Sang Soo. I say prolific because not only does he crank Films out. This is the first of two movies by Hong Sang Soo on my list. Uh, both of these films premiered on the festival circuit, festival circuit, and maybe internationally years ago, but are just now getting uh, U.S. commercial distribution. So they're finally available for people to check out. Um, Yourself and Yours is about a boyfriend and girlfriend who get in a bit of a if after the boyfriend hears that his girlfriend has been out drinking with another man and we watch this quarrel take place at the beginning of the film he confronts her rather harshly about it she is defensive we get the sense that this maybe isn't the first time it's happened she might be a semi-alcoholic um and she storms out for the night and the following day and for the rest of the movie we follow a character who appears to be this same woman who is approached by new characters, other men, and says she is someone other than who we have already met. And she says that she is the twin of the character we originally met. Um, Despite some scarring on the leg seeming to undermine that. Yeah, it is um, a highly uh, ambiguous film. It's never exactly clear um, whether or not we are seeing 
um, two different characters, characters or just one. Um, but this is like many of Hong Sang Su's uh, movies, where this is about um, they're very talky films. It's mostly about watching people sitting at tables together, drinking lots of uh, of soju, and um, it's partly just about these relationships between men and women here between a boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, my, my personal take on it is that it's partly about this woman's, um, uh, attitudes towards being the sort of object of gossip and judgment related to her, uh, alcoholism and her drinking. Um, but it is very, it is very light. It is very fun. It's super ambiguous. I think he does more on this super small scale stripped down kind of filmmaking than many, many other filmmakers working today. Um, it's uh, funny and light and accessible, um, and it's called Yourself and Yours by it's, Hong Sang Soo. It is lovely. On to my number five. My number five is a film that, which is a directorial debut, which we will be talking about shortly, um, and that film is called Swallow. I just want to make sure I'm not doing anything wrong. You couldn't do anything wrong, even if you tried. So what did you do for money before you met my son? Retail, mostly. A lucky break. I'm just real grateful. Fake it till you make it. Are you happy? Or are you pretending to be happy? stars Haley Bennett and was directed by Carlo Mirabella Davis. It is about a woman who is um, very much stuck in a situation that she has no control over, but switching that situation might be more pain um, than she's already in now. She came from um, poverty, ostensibly from what we understand, and is attempting to gain control in her life by swallowing solid objects to control something, to control her internal self. Um, This uh, lines up with a period in time with when she becomes impregnated by her husband. Um, And, you know, there's a lot to that. You know, do we think that she doesn't want the kid? Um, and that this is her controlling what's inside her body while he's controlling that. Um, th- there's just so much loaded there without ever really trying to push it on us. Um, and I really responded highly to this film. I think that her performance is what delivers it. It has a beautiful lens work, uh, a lot of light through glass, a lot of light reflected in glass. Um, you know, in the trailer, you'll see the sunlight coming through a marble. You'll also not notice as much the beautiful light coming through the windows in this stunning house and just how that beauty is imprisoning, I think, is is a very interesting concept that is brought forth by the direction and the cinematography. Um, the more I try to dislike this film, the more I end up loving it. And that's always something exciting and special. Um, you know, uh, about a week ago, this was not in my top 10, and I just kept 
trying to force it down. And, and then I'd, I'd watch segments of it and it just kept coming up and up and up. Is there something making you want to try and dislike it or push it down? Just to give everything else a chance. Ah, okay. Gotcha. Just to give everything else a chance. And maybe I don't know if I'll... I might not like the performance of her husband, or he might be really good at making me not like him, which is his role, which is interesting in and of itself. On to favorite actor and actress, lead and supporting. Where do we start here? I feel like you got to start supporting first, right? Yeah, we can do supporting. All right. All right, uh, I'll do supporting actress first and keep it brief since you've already talked about her. That's Talia Ryder from Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Clearly, uh, thumbs up from this podcast on Talia Ryder. I'm um, silently cheering her with my arm pumps. Yeah, I mean, arguably she has a lot of screen time, but I also can't think of a role this year to which the idea of support is more intrinsic in the way she never is even close to upstaging Cindy Flanagan's performance um, while just perfectly nailing that sense of friendship that it can accompany being cousins with someone and how they're not overly familiar they're very at ease with each other but it's not a sappy kind of friendship in any way it's very cool and relaxed and they clearly know each other very well and they know each other well enough that they don't have to say a a lot to each other they kind of have an unspoken kind of communication between them and the and and that's very much to her credit that she um feels so much like a figure of support to uh Sidney Flanagan's character on this journey um, yeah, Dolly Ryder, who is your uh, supporting actress of the year so far? My supporting actress also had her first role in a film this year. That is Julia Stockler, who plays Gita or Gilda in Invisible Life. She is the sister who has less screen time, hence supporting actress. Um, what I saw in her was transformative. The characters that she has the range of i don't know if you remember but um at the end of the film she is playing a different character entirely who has an entirely different personality and is very um believable in that role along that way she had played a teenager much like daisy edgar jones and paul mezcal and normal people who start as you know high schoolers and then age up she starts as essentially a high schooler and then goes away and has to come back and and raise a child and is incredibly complex as a character. You know, when she's out um, at the bar, she's very different than when she's raising her son later in the, like there's just so much um, layering to this performance. Um, I truly find it to, to be the best performance by a supporting actress this year Um, in a, in a very solid year of supporting performances all around from men and women in limited series and films. So, um, she is definitely my star, and I could easily see her staying here all the way till the end of the year. Good pick. What is your supporting actor selection, Michael? My supporting actor uh, is from a film that hasn't come up yet. It is Ventura from Vitalina Varela. Um, Ventura is an actor who, Pedro Costa, who directed Vitalina Varela, um, he's been multiple multiple cost of films, and as far as I can tell, he's always been credited just by his first name, Ventura. Um, I looked for a last name, couldn't find it. Um, but, uh, I will talk about Vitalina Varela as a film in more detail later. Um, 
and I'm going to keep it brief um, and just wait, I guess, uh, to talk about that in the context of the film, if that's okay. Absolutely. My supporting actor selection, I unfortunately also cannot um, really dig into. His name is Mark Menchaca. I already talked about his um, talent earlier um, when I was discussing The Outsider, which is where he has this nomination for. The complexities that his character goes through uh, do involve possession, in which he does have to become a different character and possibly plays more than one role. I cannot go past that without spoiling content so i will leave it at that and say that this fellow took me out of nowhere i had no awareness of him as if as a actor i can't tell you if i've ever seen him before and now i'm very positive that he is the next you know character actor in line with bill camp that is going to be able to if he is put in a situation to take film by storm as a supporting actor cool cool what is your selection for lead support, or rather, lead actress? My pick for favorite actress of the year is Tally Medell, who is in Dan Salit's film 14, which we will talk about later. I swear we are doing saying that more often than we usually do. We've made this very painful for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Bear with us. Um, she's a relatively new actress. She's worked with uh, Dan Sleet previously. Um, she has this really kind of narrow emotional range she usually works in. And it's just fascinating to me how much she suggests while sort of um, limiting her... Uh, her range to to just repeat myself, I guess there's there's kind of a deliberate inexpressiveness, and that has everything to do with Dan Sleet's direction. Um, that only makes her that much more kind of ma- magnetic and charming. She's an incredibly endearing screen presence, and that has to do with her character as well in these films. Um, but uh, she's an actress who I just cannot stop thinking about for how little she seems to be doing and how simple the things she's doing seem to be, and just a convent, just not conventional, um, and every day that seems just to be bursting through to something so much more real, um, and and lovable, um, that I I really really connect with. Uh, it's Tally Medell in uh, Dan Sleet's fourteen. My selection for favorite lead actress this year should come as no surprise, and we will be talking about her again later. Daisy Edgar-Jones. Briefly, she begins her role as a teenager who is very much the opposite personality of who we get when she's in college, and then becomes a a different version of that personality that's more mature and also more macabre um, for a time in Sweden. And the range that she um, presents as a performer, the believability with which she delivers her lines, the way that she takes what is melodramatic and makes it earnest is truly in a tier of, you know, someone who should be a top build actress. You know, I, th- I think that a lot of people, not to equivocate first names, but I think a lot of people after the first Star Wars reboot film thought that... Uh, Daisy Ridley was the next great actress um, from that area. And um, I think they picked their their actress too soon. They picked that that uh, the wrong Daisy. flower, the wrong Daisy, <laughs> if you will, too soon. And I, I think that Daisy Edgar Jones will have an, 
incredibly complex um, history as, as a performer as she grows. And um, I, there's a, a woman whose name, uh, I believe her name is Charlotte Gainsbourg. Um, I don't know if you remember yeah. her at all, but I, I see her having just as much range and complexity as Charlotte Gainsbourg, but with a little bit more star power. Um, and I'm I'm very interested to see how that graduates her onto the global cinema level in the coming decade. You probably just scared her because that means she has to go do a couple Von Trier films, right? I would not be opposed. <laughs> <laughs> On she is great. To your favorite lead actor. My favorite lead actor is Hugh Jackman in Bad Education, as I've already talked about. Uh, easily my favorite Hugh Jackman performance uh, that I can think of. Have I, you ever seen Logan? I have. I do not care for Logan. I think Logan is a joke, to what be honest, if I'm going to be harsh about things. The Prestige is fine. I do I do not love that movie. I mean, if I actually, I'd probably have fun rewatching that movie, but it does not mean a great deal to me, and that mm. performance doesn't mean a great deal to me. Um you I know, tried, is, folks. I tried. You tried. Uh, uh, the 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 administrator he's playing here is not a particularly lovable character, although he is very much in love with himself and his own appearance. Um, and I think he uh, very nicely navigates making him sort of a um, uh, tricky character character to sympathize within within a way, as we get to know his personal life. Um, and some of the the personal aspects of his life that he has um, kept from public view. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I I, I think it's a, a complicated character, and he really just um, nicely gives us those different shades of his character. Just good acting. Hugh Jackman. He is a good actor. I can agree to mm -hmm. that. My favorite lead actor so far this year is Mark Ruffalo in Derek Sion France's I Know This Much Is True. He plays two brothers, one of which um, has a mental disability in which he suffers from many things, mostly in lack of um, love, it, it seems, when you're presented with the film. Um, it seems like the the path that he took to his mental illnesses um, came through rejection and um, the way that Mark Ruffalo pays that off in his brief times where he gets to act out things that make sense from that character um, are really empathetic and sincere and kind and um, while oppositely playing a twin who is the opposite who is angry and vitriolic and um, treats his girlfriend who um has some complications um of her own in a very backhanded um way that, that is complex and all his other relationships with characters are, are very um chaotic at best um and just the the balance that he has and the raw nerve that mark is capable of getting is truly arresting to witness and he he is what makes the project work in collaboration with all those other great performers one i still gotta see on to number four all right my number four is another hong sang su film this one is hill of freedom you um, have them in the wrong order oh come on uh this one is a a uh, film that has its chronology scrambled. It is about Just a... Just like you. 
Yeah. What does that mean? It means your yours and yourself should oh, be above this. I see. <laughs> nice. Uh, it's about a Japanese man who travels to Seoul, Korea, to reconnect with a lover he was once with there, um, who, who he once was with uh, uh, during a previous stay in Korea. Um the chronology is scrambled as a result of a character at the very beginning of the film dropping a series of letters. And as she picks them up, she picks them up out of order and leaves one of the letters um, behind. And that sort of kicks off this um, story that unfolds completely out of order, which just sort of recontextualizes any given scene um, while also uh, increasing ambiguity by dropping maybe a dream or two into the mix. Um but yeah, like uh, any Hong Sang Soo movie, um, it's a really minimalistic, almost hangout movie kind of vibe where you're watching people drink and talk. Um, he's, uh, you know, typically known for kind of a unique shooting style where he does very little shot reverse shots. You're usually just watching people in two shots sit across from each other at these tables and occasionally rather than an edit, he'll zoom in on one character or the other. Um, a formal touch that uh, we didn't really talk about when we t- discussed the show or this movie on the podcast, um, but uh, that I think is sort of just an, an, an a fun and interesting punctuation mark that helps to sort of, you know, um, clarify what his cinematic stamp is. Um, I think it's a really funny movie. Um, it's, it's profound even in its simplicity. Um, and it's quite short. Almost like most of his, or many of his movies are, I think they're super digestible and it's, uh, you know, just about how he finds profundity in the simplest of things that is really cool to me. And there I was thinking it was just a movie about a guy finding a dog. It is that too. My number four is Invisible Life. You Querido pai, escrevo a bordo do Liberty, partindo para a Grécia, muito feliz ao lado de Yorgos. Um abraço dessa filha e irmã que os ama infinitamente. And as I teased earlier, I'll get you that full title that I promised. The film when we went to see it, Michael, originally at the AMC 10 used to be the Sundance down in the U district had the original title still. And that original title is the invisible life of Eurydice Guzmao. And they shortened it up to invisible life. Um, so that's what it's under everywhere else. But I, I do feel like that original title shouldn't have been changed. I understand for marketing reasons and everything, but I, I do think that that is the true crux of this film. And it is one of the, top tier films that I've seen this year in its, um, I I have to say the alchemical different portions that go into it, the heart that is worn on the sleeves of these actors, the way that the cinematographer and the director shot the very weather, the very nature of the setting 
to become atmospheric as its own quality of the film. The score becomes its own quality of the film. These characters at different junctures and remembering who they were before and how they were connected and seeing how they're still connected as they're separated. Um, And then that introduction that we get where they're on the island and she's shouting for her sister being the preface to everything to come and clearly communicating in a very simple surrealistic way the entire um, kind of thesis of the film um, very openly and very simply just I you know she's not saying I love you come here but the way she's behaving the way that she's looking for her is saying all that and that is what makes the film so touching as you see these women raise kids, um, have to deal with their parents who they, um, or rather not their parents or their parents. And when Julia Stockler runs into the the father, just seeing that reaction and, you know, having her own pseudo mother, um, who ends up gifting a house to her. Like there's just so much complexity and melodrama that I end up falling in love with in this film. Um, it's truly special to me and I, I highly recommend it to all listeners. Streaming on prime, I believe Mm -hmm. that's correct. On to your top three directorial debuts. Start with number three and go back and forth. All right. My number three is baby teeth. Oh, God. I lost my hair. It looks cool. It's like way better than the one that I gave you. No. <laughs> I'll do anything. Can he please stay? Mila, he threatened me with a meat prong. He threatened my wife with a meat prong? <laughs> I don't want to hurt you. So don't. Moses! Wait, Henry, Henry! Mila should have the world at her feet right now. I have no idea what you're feeling. I can't feel anything because I can't breathe because you take up all the air. I think something in you has changed. When I met you, it was like you weren't scared of anything. I don't think the world would be this big or weird if we become obsessed with functionality. She's going to be okay. Oh, that'll do. This is the worst possible parenting I can imagine. From Shannon Murphy, which we talked about on the podcast, this is a tearjerker cancer drama meets family dramedy starring Eliza Scanlon, Ben Mendelsohn. Oh, I'm forgetting the other actors who we both liked who plays the mother of Eliza Scanlon's character. S.C. Davis. Yes, thank you very much. Really strong cast. Um, unique storytelling that's a little bit more immersive than it is uh, exposition-driven. It's about uh, a young girl's um, dealing with cancer and meeting a uh, vagabond, free-spirited kind of guy who she develops a crush on, which uh, makes for a very complicated relationship that the parents aren't quite sure how to handle. Um, which is very, very dryly funny while also having uh, real s- sadness, very relatable, um, and uh, quite easy to watch while being very sad. Um, and uh, definitely a distinctive new 
voice in the filmmaking. Um, baby teeth. Agree. Love the selection. My number three is Patrick Volrath's debut film, 7500. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You're Captain. I'd like to wish you a nice day and thank you for your trust in us. We have a seven five zero zero. Several men attacked our cockpit. We stopped them from now. The captain is injured. Status of the crew, I don't know. They have a hostage. They're going to kill him if I don't open the door. Don't stop, please. In which Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays a airplane pilot who is on a flight when there is a hostile takeover of the cockpit attempted. And it is something that I do not want to spoil. I will tell you it is now streaming on Amazon Prime. It is the best performance from Gordon Levitt in years and also because he hasn't been in films for years. Um, I, I just would highly recommend it. This is a German filmmaker who I expect to see great things out of and his atmospheric piece here really reminded me of that one-man show that we saw out of uh, Joe Penna's Arctic last year with Mads Mikkelsen. This is just a director and an actor pairing together to tell you a story. And, you know, there's something very special about just a full-bodied character performance and a single scene or a single setting just delivering the goods. And uh, I really, really appreciated this film and would highly recommend it, especially now streaming free on Prime. Accessible. I like that. Your number two. My number two debut is Take Me Somewhere Nice. What do you think of this? If you were a kid, if you were a kid, if which is a Bosnian film by a director named Ina Sendijarovic. Um, it is about a uh, teen girl who was raised in the Netherlands who um, returns to her native Bosnia after her father, who uh, abandoned her and her mother, falls ill. Um, she flies to Bosnia and meets up with her cousin and a friend of hers to take a road trip to see her dad in the hospital. Um, so it is kind of a riff plot-wise on Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise, this idea of a young woman in a foreign country meeting up with two other guys. They're all kind of cool and aloof and taking this road Isn't trip together. Is this some for you? Wasn't Holiday just like this? Oh, no, that was like a gangsters i mean i guess they're technically on vacation very similar kinds (laughs) of uh covers for sure um yeah you know they're they're cool kind of aloof teenagers kind of angsty a little alienated i guess from uh uh from the broader world around them um but uh the the narrative itself, I actually think fault it, it gets a little weaker in the second half. I don't know that that this is the 
uh, best script among my top three debuts. I think there are some issues towards the end. It takes some, some rather severe plot twists that I don't think totally work, but it's an incredibly stylish movie. Um, I was really swept away by these fixed camera shots um, that are uh, just super stylish and fantastic looking. It's a very colorful film, which is not anything like Stranger Than Paradise, which is black and white, obviously. Um, lots of pinks and blues. Um, she really, really knows how to uh, wield the camera and, and, and compose a shot and these kinds of this tableau kind of filmmaking, I think is something I really respond to. Um, and, it, and it looks great. And I'm always leaning, I personally lean towards something that is more formally accomplished than, uh, perfectly written. Um, so, uh, I will definitely see her, uh, whatever she does next and, and how she applies that form to something maybe a little better written. I have not seen this film. This is the first time hearing of it. It's now on my watch list. I will let people know that it is streaming on Mubi, and it was a, the official selection uh, for the Oscars from uh, the Netherlands. Oh, that I didn't know, actually. That's cool. My number two is a film that we were just talking about a little bit ago called Swallow from Carlo Mirabella Davis. I would just reiterate all the stuff that I saw with how light travels through glass, and though it seems beautiful, it is instead presented as imprisoned beauty, and just how that visually is such a a continuous thing that is not directly um, addressed. It's never something that they try to force on you. It's not something that is um, formally oppressive. It is just something that is formally dazzling. And you don't really realize that this pretty thing you're looking at is terrible. Um, and I think that I didn't realize it until well after the movie. And um, I would just reiterate that everyone should watch this. It's a fantastic directorial debut. It would easily be my number one if I had not just squeezed in my number one. Um, which we will be talking about again and again and again. What is your number one, Michael? My number one is also Swallow. So I'll just second what you just said. Um, won't recap it. Agree. Super well directed. I love just some of the reference points that it's working with, like the idea about these kinds of norms and conventions for housewives that are sort of suffocating her and how that's kind of, tr you know, you can trace that back to the um, housewife melodramas of Douglas Sirk. Um, just a, and, a quick caveat, the dress that she's wearing. While oh, yeah. elegant, feels like a prison outfit just because she's so rigid and like zipped up in it. Yeah, that feels very 50s to me. I think the production design super interesting. And it's like you said, this very sleek, modern, modernly uh, designed house, both in its architecture and interior design. Um, but she feels very 50s to me, I think, partly in, in some of the wardrobe choices, which just trait, you know, points to where some of these norms that are very imprisoning for her kind of originated in, you know, 50s suburbia and that kind of thing. Um yeah, you know, I, he, he clearly seems like a director who's kind of familiar with film history and some of the, the points, you know, some of the things he's pulling from, but but totally making it his own. Like, it is a very bold kind of metaphor that this is centered on, um, and that is very distinct. I can't point to too many other films where a character experiences this kind of affliction, if you will call it that, and the idea that she really derives a lot of 
a, a sense of self-possession from it is, is really cool. Um, yeah. Awesome movie. Brilliant choice. I wholeheartedly agree. Except I saw a film called Last and First Men from first-time director Johan Johansson. And the way that these large, vast structures are slowly saddled upon or sidled up to or zoomed away from or zoomed toward or just linger on this brutal landscape with a depth of fog and a concrete structure while the score is going or Tilda is telling us something about our distant ancestors on this different planet is more it's just the most arresting filmmaking I've seen all year it is in a tier of its own as a piece um and I will be talking about it again shortly but I will say that um the loss of him as a director is much more than I anticipated when I first heard about this project and I would um liken his style of shooting architecture um, and the magnitude of it passively to Koganada, in which I do not comprehend what I'm seeing, but I understand that it's of importance um, and or value in, in a very intrinsic way and um, a very special. Great loss. On to number three. All right. I think this is kind of the case for you at one point in your list where you do a bit of a jump tier wise. Mm -hmm. This is definitely a a tier jump for me into the top three, which I could easily reorder one way or another. But these are in a little bit of a different category from uh, four through ten on my list. Uh, My number three is 14, directed by Dan Salit. Uh, It is a micro budget drama about uh, the friendship between two young women uh, in their 20s or so living in New York. Um, They have been friends since uh, middle school or so, but the film picks up with them in their 20s um, at a point where um, the friendship is starting to take a bit of a toll on um, one of them as this uh, imbalance has kind of developed. Um, One of them um, is particularly uh, emotionally unstable and unwell um, and incredibly dependent on the other. Um, and um, it's uh, it charts this relationship over the course of 10 or a dozen or so years. And one of the sort of striking formal qualities about it are these sort of elisions in time where just as sort of abruptly as we'll cut through just a, a normal conversation, we'll cut and we'll, we will have jumped, you know, uh, a few years um, through the um, journey of this friendship. Um, and much of the drama in the relationship is sort of confined to those gaps that we don't see. You know, where there's just really these sort of subtle, almost tough, tossed off bits of dialogue about what might have transpired in those years. Um, and they each kind of cycle through different boyfriends, through different jobs. Um, the emotionally troubled one has trouble holding down job and her situation only kind of deteriorates. Um, I think it's one of the best movies about friendship that I've ever seen. And this idea that... Um, breaking up with a friend can be so much harder than breaking up with a, you know, romantic partner in a way. I know you're sorry. You're always sorry. Oh, let me apologize. Joe, what does it matter? It's always the same. Some shit happened to you, and then the people standing Stop near it. you get shit all over Stop them. It. Um, 
when when those roots are so deep when you've met someone in childhood um and how those relationships tend to just kind of wilt rather than you know have the band-aid just kind of ripped off them um and how hard that is when the support is kind of a uh uh one-way road i guess um and you know this is made for like less than a hundred thousand dollars i think um and it's reaps rewards way beyond its budget and scale i think it's really really uh human and and awesome it's called 14 you talked me into it do it my number three is Derek sion france's i know this much is true in which mark ruffalo plays twins um one of which cuts his hand off for reasons that are preposterous at best um which introduce us to the schizophrenic um, aspect of his diseases. Um, But he is a much more complex character than that, as we come to realize through some flashback sequences near the end. This um, project is also hemmed together with Catherine Hahn, with Imogen Poots, with Rob Hubel playing the best friend. Um, There's so much talent here that I, I... just have to take a a special aside and say Rosie O'Donnell is doing the best work that she's done since Smilf and those two roles of a supporting um, actress that she's had in both the television show Smilf and this limited series really show me that she deserves consideration for bigger projects um, that have characters that, that she can step into because I, I see a lot of bill camp in her where mm. there's just no denying that she is this part of the city that she is this caseworker that she is this um harder east side bronx mother um or grandma which she plays in smilf um so i i do want to just call her out uh derek sion france adapted a novel here that spans generations and has some surrealistic qualities, but it, it translates those in very real ways that feel sincere. This is one of the best adaptations I've seen of a novel in some time, uh, excluding normal people. Uh, I just have to underline and, and highly recommend if you just got HBO Max, please give this a shot because I think that it's been kind of ignored and um it is i think just as good if not um maybe a little bit less than uh the place beyond the pines these are one hour episodes right it's a little Um, a little longer they might be 48 minutes to like an hour and two minutes i think that they vary depending on content they're they're not always in the current timeline Mm. and and sometimes when we do go back in time i believe those episodes are shorter got it on to classic discoveries of the year. All right. Starting at number three. Start at number three and count our way down. All right. My number three is Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter from 1955. Uh, I like that movie. I think people are familiar with The Night of the Hunter, if you like movies. Uh, it was his debut, his one and only film. Uh, starred Robert Mitchum as a serial killing preacher. Um, sort of a dreamlike thriller in a way. Very, very surreal with lots of expressionistic light and shadow. Looks awesome. 
Nightmare great underwater sequences. Awesome movie. What's your number three? I'll be brief. My number three is a head trip of a flick called Existence from David Cronenberg, starring Jennifer Jason Lee, as well as Jude Law. There are numerous versions of reality in this film, um, and I don't honestly know which one is real or if there is a real one or if it was a game all along. Even now, um, I love the costumes. I love the art design. I love the narrative. I love the pulpiness. I love everything about this project. It's just the synthesis that happens every once in a while where a good movie just ends up being a great movie because of the the heart on the sleeves and the, the go for broke and the <laughs> preposterous art design that I ended up loving of these fleshy video game controllers that you're rubbing against that just feel straight Lynchian to me. Just grotesque objects that end up, that you end up associating with like love or positivity and getting jacked in your spine so that you can play these games. So they install this plug into your body surgically with this giant piston hammer and Willem Dafoe's role in that. It's just a a fantastic uh, piece of film and um, it's easily my number three favorite. That is a blind spot in Cronenberg's filmography for me. My number two classic discovery is My Night at Mods. It's an Eric Romare film from 1969. It's kind of the centerpiece of the moral tale series. Uh, and it has the basic premise that all of those, uh, all the films in that series do, which is where a man uh, develops an attraction to one wo- woman, starts to pursue her only to be sort of uh, distracted attention-wise as a second woman appears to whom he is also interested or attracted. Um, a very talky film shot in black and white with cinematography by Nestor Almendros. Beautifully, beautifully shot. Um, lots of interiors, but also these kind of these snowy shots of, of uh, France and, and French landscapes. Um, and it's a, a talky kind of hyper literate relationship drama that Romare does. Um, and uh, just just fascinating, engaging uh, conversation between just between people um, and their sort of uh, romantic attractions to one another. Um, really, really uh, cool movie. My Night at Mods. I look forward to watching it as I do love Romare. My number two is a Robert Altman film by the name of Cookie's Fortune. Mm-hmm. I turned this film on with zero expectation because it's still currently streaming on Netflix and I'm trying to work my way through 160 classic films this year, Michael. This film has Oscar award-winning actress Patricia Neal, Liv Tyler, Julianne Moore, Glenn Close, Chris O'Donnell, also known as Robin if you grew up in the 90s and watched Batman, Charles S. Dutton, and Ned Betty. This is one of the greatest ensemble casts for a what it, I, I have to assume is not considered a prestige picture in retrospect that I've ever seen. It is a whodunit of Southern style. And it is 
uh, slick, it's sly. A lot of the stuff that you said about the smartness and the wittiness of Bad Education, I would throw in here with Glenn Close's uh, villainous character and the foolish daughter character of hers or niece character uh, played by Julianne Moore. Um, whereas we have kind of the um, the earnest heartedness and the uh, stupidity almost of Liv Tyler and um, her love interest. And this is just a whodunit about a woman who ends up dead, who has a fortune and there are lots of implications to this picture. It does heavily address race in the southern town. And Charles S. Dutton was her housekeeper, and she has many guns, one of which was the gun that killed her. And he cleans all the guns, so his fingerprints are all over him. And you end up um, kind of wondering who um, is going to end up with the fortune rather than who committed the murder. Once you watch the picture, there's no doubt about um, the event. But it's all about who's going to get the wealth and the journey there. Um, I love this film and I can't recommend it enough. I don't know enough about Altman, but I can tell you I love this one. Still one I need to see. On to your number one. Or should I say, yo, yo, yo. On to your number one. Love it. My number one is Yee from 2000 uh, by Edward Yang. Uh, it is an, kind of an epic family drama. Uh, very representative of the uh, Taiwanese new wave uh, filming style. Um, lots of long shots and long takes. Um, kind of a complex narrative in a way, um, since we're following a couple different generations within, within this one um, Taiwanese family as they um, uh, go through all the things that people do in modern life. Uh, losing family members, marriage, um, young people having crushes, uh, a little kid finding his interest in art and photography. Um, it, you know, a very kind of everyday humanity to it um, uh, just makes it super relatable while this kind of directorial detachment where the camera is never commenting too much on the action and just letting us have this kind of observant, uh, removed viewpoint, um, is, is just stunning. And that's, I think that's kind of characteristic of, of Taiwanese, Taiwanese new wave in, in general, but it's far and away the most, um, uh, uh, affecting, um, of, of the films of those that I've seen. Um, and, and, and incredibly acted across the board, long movie, but, um, very, very moving. Yee. I need to watch it, want to watch it, am worried about its runtime. Long movie. My number one classic discovery of the year we discussed on the show, and that is Preston Sturgis's Sullivan's Travels, in which you get every single little ounce of narrative that you can out of Gulliver's travels into the Hollywood, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, uh, retelling. Um, the film opens up with him trying to get a film made that the studio does not want to make, and they don't think that he understands poverty enough. And then he goes on a travel uh, to learn about poverty so that he can tell the story accurately. And we, the watcher, get to see him create that film for us. 
in real time. And it's one of my favorite pictures probably of all time, um, just because of all the different nuances that it gets into, all the different um, original stories that it addresses while maintaining its own heart and soul. Um, And it's very theatrical and funny and also has a sense of, of urgency to it and just so much tone management on reflection that I, I shake my head in awe of all the different genres that we end up in in that single film. Um, so that's Sullivan's Travels, and you can watch it and go listen to our previous episode uh, where we discuss many of Preston Sturgis's films. You own that on Blu-ray, right? I own a Criterion Blu-ray of that. Thank you very much. That's right. Good pick. On to your number two, Michael. My number two is The Grand Bazaar by uh, the experimental filmmaker Jody Mack. Uh, this is a, a 60-minute experimental film. Uh, Mack uh, is primarily known as an animator, and this is a kind of like a travelogue. This is a, a film that spans multiple continents, but rather than following a character on this kind of journey around the world, our main point of focus are these patterned and colorful textiles and fabrics that Mac is typically working with um, that she animates using stop motion and sometimes just kind of um, uh, rapid single frame uh, movement. Um, So, you know, a typical scene might be watching these stacks of fabrics on a train as she's giving us this rapid succession of images where we watch these patterns change and the stack of fabrics change or easily one of the most satisfying, intensely pleasing shots in the movie is where you see a uh, motorcycle kind of parked on, parked up right on the edge of a cliff that's overlooking the ocean and confined to the side view mirror of the motorcycle is this, uh, are these images of these textiles, these really colorful textiles. And you see, uh, these shots, um, sort of at rapid fire speed flip from one to the next. Um, why is it satisfying? My scientific answer, it just is uh that's just the way some aesthetics work for me in uh experimental cinema it's just intensely pleasing it just is um but it kind of traces these um textiles and the 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 journey they take um in kind of a commercial sense you see you know uh the cargo ships that they would be um that would carry them from one country to another you see them in homes we see scarves blankets little swatches of fabric um so it's just, you know, kind of music to the eyes, but it also sounds awesome. It's all original music that's sort of pop music adjacent and it's very rhythmic and beat driven. Um, one song after another is just a banger. Anyone who has seen it will talk about the song that uh, incorporates the Skype ringtone into it, which is super, super catchy. Um, and, you know, I think experimental cinema can have the reputation for at this length of being kind of an endurance test, which is in no way my experience with this film, which I think is lively and bright and fun um, and super easy to watch and, and ingestible. So it's streaming on movie and it's only 60 minutes. So very doable. I recommend it. My number two is Sally Rooney's Normal People. so corrupt 
and sexy. Would you say your feelings are involved? Obviously. Who is it obvious to? Starring Daisy Edgar Jones and Paul Mescal. All episodes are directed by Lenny Abrahamson or Hetty McDonald. This is a transformative narrative um, to both, I think, the viewer and the subjects of the piece. I found myself deeply moved um, at high ends and low ends of emotion and completely enraptured in the narrative being told about these young individuals who are complex and um, very unforgivable and entirely forgivable. They're not there for your melodrama, which is very special to me about this piece. They're there to just be flawed and to be flawless in their own ways and to attempt to voice their attraction and their draw to each other over a period of time while also learning who they are and developing identity and all those things that are so deeply human and exactly what every parent belabors over as they raise their children. Um, and I think that the, the smartness and the aptitude behind the screen and in front of the screen are just unparalleled in kind of modern miniseries making you know it's it's one thing to say i got a, a you know a actress who i, I think is going to be great for this project it's another to say i have an actress and an actor who have never done any pictures that i want to carry your giant series for hulu and bbc um, that is a mammoth adaptation of a best-selling novel um and i, I think that Every single person just deserves respect and, and applause for the way that this came together. I do think there are some moments that are weaker than others, but I think that when you stretch something um, over six hours that is this complex, that jumps this much in time, that um, that's really easy for me to forgive and look past because of some of the more um, awe-inspiring moments, like when Daisy Edgar Jones is with Paul Mezcal and his mother, and she finally asks, what do people think of my mom in town? And just seeing that little bit of character growth in realizing what that means about everything else that she's going through is just so complex and hits home. Um, so this is easily and far away one of the best entries on the year. And you can stream it if you have Hulu right now. I like it too. Yeah. And what is your favorite technically beautiful film on the year, Michael? Is your You can't say ye. Is 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 your favorite technical achievement of the year different from your number one or no? No. Can we just t- combine them then? Since mine we are the can. same. Yes. Let's do that. That's a good idea. Okay. So what is your favorite technically beautiful film that is also your number one? That's right. It is <laughs> Portugal. 
Vitalina Varela from the Portuguese filmmaker Pedro Costa, uh, which is sort of a companion piece with his uh, last film, Horse Money. Uh, the movie uh, shares its name with its lead actress, who is playing a fictionalized version of herself, essentially. Um, and anyone who has seen uh, Horse Money will will recognize her. She played a supporting role in that film. And there's actually a 10-minute stretch or so in Horse Money where she tells her story, which is essentially the the story of this film, Vitalina Varela, which is that she spent much of her life in Cape Verde, where she... Um, got married and built a home a home with her husband um, and he subsequently left her for Portugal um, where he winded up in these immigrant slums on the outskirts of Lisbon that much of Costa's filmography has looked at um, and abandoned her and they spent decades apart and then he eventually fell ill and she received word of his illness and flew to Portugal finally to be with him and r- arrived just a couple days too late. He had already passed away, um, which is essentially the story of this movie, although this is really in no way a plot-driven movie. Um, it is um, about Vitalina's uh, experience in this neighborhood after her husband's death. Um, it is very much slow Cinema. It is it is very slow, and it's about her grief, her mourning, um, her anger at her husband, her experience with other people in this um, shanty town, um, and um, I, I, I think one of the things anybody um, talks about when they talk about Costa's films are just the depth of his images and the and the, and the darkness of them. It's a very very dark movie in multiple senses of the words oftentimes the screen will be almost you know entirely black except except for just a a slasher pool of light here or there to illuminate a face or a hand um that you know usually um brings comparisons like to a caravaggio or a vermeer painting or something like that just because of the kind of starkness of this chiaroscuro lighting he's he works with um and uh yeah, so it's essentially kind of a docu-fiction where he has taken this woman's story and filtered it through um, a kind of poetry that they write together and then um, and put to the screen um, with these really, really dark, um, uh, ravishing images. I think this is just still one of the most um, visually extraordinary movies that I've seen. Um, and uh, I think there's just something deeply, deeply moving to me about, about the process and kind of um, how the, the, the ethics of how he works is sort of tethered to his aesthetics. Um, and it's, it's, it's slow and dark and a lonely movie. But, um, you know, if you can uh, get yourself up for it, I think it is incredibly moving and poetic. Um, and uh, I think he's definitely one of the greatest filmmakers working today um, and doing something completely different, completely um, of his own kind in, in cinema. Um, Vitalina Varela. It is a fantastic film, and I would definitely recommend folks watch it. However, you're saying there was a plot. I thought that he just said walk and then tried to shoot the most beautiful walking sequence ever created. Um, he does that, too. It is 
truly impressive and the i think that the black matte quality is um i can't say that i've seen a better lit film this year i i just don't think that i have like the only thing that would compare maybe is night of the hunter Mm, yeah, yeah, for in, in similar very kind different, of ways, but, but yeah, I, I, see similar, the, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah like yeah. just lighting. Um, very special film. I, I endorse that. My number one and most technically beautiful film of the year are the same, but first an honorable mention about Ooh. my most technically beautiful film. I do want to include uh, episodes one and two of Damien Chazelle's Netflix series, The Eddie. Um, in which other directors do come on later, but he shoots on film. It's a very jazzy, frenetic, beautiful cinematography that's kind of introducing you to an amalgam of French culture and an American culture um, together trying to earn money. And it is just so rich and vibrant and also depressive and uh, violent and I, I just wholeheartedly endorse watching those first two episodes because they are visually arresting. They are going to be draining. Um, it's going to feel like watching a film. It's not going to feel like watching TV. But um, I really endorse watching them because they are so formally dazzling. Um, and now with that honorable mention out of the way, my favorite or rather most technically beautiful film selection and my number one film on the year are... Listen patiently. We, who are the last men, earnestly desire to communicate with you. Astronomers have made a startling discovery, which assigns a speedy end to humankind. We can help you, and we need your help. Johan Johansson's Last and First Men, in which Tilda Swinton narrates an adapted screenplay of the story by Olaf Stapledon from, I believe, 1934, called Last and First Men. He was a German science fiction writer who writes from a almost omnipresent perspective of a far distant future human race that has thousand-year gestation cycles, that is on a different planet, that has a place where, um, what would you say, not children, but maybe teenagers and young adults go. They go to the polar regions on this planet while adults um, do child rearing and control society in a separate place. But all of that is secondary to the tone, to the content of the images, to the starkness of reality, to the idea of our distant people that we don't know dying that are us changed and the thought to adapt this to film in such a way and to shoot these monolithic structures that are 
concrete, that seem old, that seem new, that seem gargantuan, that seem like the temples seem, but from the future, is so rich and so awe-inspiring. I, I have not seen a, a better piece of science fiction um, in in quite a few years now. I, I think that um, Under the Skin and Interstellar are my favorite science fiction films um, kind of in this tier. And I don't know which one of those came out later. Maybe Under the Skin was 2013 and Interstellar was 2014. So I guess it would be Interstellar. But I just haven't seen anything working on this level of the storytelling medium with the lens um, in, in a long, long time. And I think that everyone should watch this. It's very hard to get a copy right now. Um, but I do believe that it will be coming out um, in some format. I imagine Mubi will acquire it if it is not given theatrical distribution. But this um, directorial debut that is very much, um, I think, like an elephant sitting still. Um, you, you know, there's a lot of correlations there about the future of mankind and the past of mankind with um, stunning shots of landscapes with this incredible score that um, will challenge you to think differently and to be moved. What's the runtime on it, roughly? It's about an hour and 39 minutes, I want to say. Oh, it's longer Maybe than it's thought. shorter. Yeah. It's, it's very much not a long piece, and um, you kind of get enraptured by it, I'll say. Like, as long as you stay attentive to it, it will kind of propel you. It's like listening to an audiobook. Yeah. Theatrical for anything is weird right now, but I do very much hope to see this on a big screen at some point. I'd prefer that Pacific Science Center opens and puts ah. this on that screen, mm-hmm. but I doubt that's going to happen. That'd be dope. That is our best of the year so far in the year of COVID-19 2020. Um, hopefully we've been to the theater for months by the time we do the end of this year, Michael. Yeah, given how it feels like this has been a long year, by the time we do this again, I feel like we will have longer beards, we will have aged if things continue like this the first six months of the year have been. Indeed, or one of us won't even be here. It's <laughs> <That's> possible. <laughs> Run! Go! Get to the chopper! We have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. And that's another one in the can. I am winded.